Have you ever watched an apocalyptic sci-fi movie and wondered, could any of this really happen? I'm Carrie Bechet, and on Hypothetical, we explore what-if questions two ways, through speculative science fiction and through insight from the world's most brilliant scientists. And spoiler alert, your favorite sci-fi movies aren't nearly as far-fetched as you may think. Time travel with me into our possible futures on Hypothetical. New episodes every Tuesday available on all podcast apps. That's Hypothetical, H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L. Hey, please advise nation. You might be asking yourself, what is this new podcast in my feed and why is Malls the one talking? Well, this is Emotionally Broken Psychos, a please advise spinoff all about reality TV and the stuff that it makes us feel. And to make sure that everyone who subscribes to Please Advise has a chance to find Emotionally Broken Psychos, we'll be airing the first three episodes in the Please Advise feed. So if you like what you hear, search for Emotionally Broken Psychos on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you use and subscribe, just like you did for Please Advise. And if you hate what you hear, bear with us and maybe just skip past them. Seriously, guys, I appreciate you being cool about it. I know some people get real bent about having things in their feed that they did not subscribe to, but we here at Please Advise will only do this when we are bringing you new content that we want you to find that we are making specifically for you guys based on the notes that you send us and the feedback we get. So if this is a bummer for you, if you don't want it here, seriously, feel free to skip it. I'm so sorry to uh, annoy you. But um, from time to time, we will be releasing new projects um, and extensions of the Please Advise family on this feed so that true malls heads slash please advise nation know how to find us and the new stuff. We're doing it for you guys. Hope you like the show. Welcome to Emotionally Broken Psychos, a please advise spinoff. This is the podcast that dissects your favorite reality TV shows in a quest for self-improvement or as we like to think of it, where displacement meets lulls. Whether it's healing a personal wound through lessons learned on The Bachelor or reaching a better understanding of your interpersonal relationships through Vanderpump Rules, we'll mine our favorite reality TV shows for insight into human nature, the way we interact, and how we feel about ourselves. I'm your host, Molly McAleer. Welcome to the first episode of Emotionally Broken Psychos. I'm going to ask you guys to bear with me because this is not like Please Advise. While this is the Please Advise spinoff, it's not exactly like Please Advise. I am recording this alone. I will usually be alone. Sometimes I'll have a guest, um, just like the Please Advise mini-eps where I talked about reality TV with Jason Shapiro and Ed Hansen. Occasionally, I'll bring in a guest uh, for throwback episodes in particular. But for the most part, I'll be recording this by myself alone. And then Meredith will be, Meredith Bracelos, our producer slash friend, will be editing it for me. So I'm alone in a room talking to myself about psychology and reality television. And just bear with me, just like, please advise when we first started, we kind of had to get our calf legs strengthened up uh, before we could be full-blown cows. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to need to do the same thing over here. So please thank you for sticking with me. Um, and this is what the show is. Basically, I noticed that about a third of you wrote into Please Advise saying that your favorite part of the show is, in fact, when we talk about reality TV and re- like relate it to or link it to real-life issues, bring 
in some of uh, our callers' problems and relate to them to things at home that I know you guys are watching. I can't help but do that because I spend so much time focusing on the emotions of reality TV people and so much less of my own. So sometimes it can be the easiest way for me to relate to a caller. Uh, but I notice that if I'm doing this, and I think this is right, if I do this and about a third of you love this about the show, then that means that a lot of you are out there doing this too. And maybe you don't want the please advise. Maybe you just want to talk about the way we feel and the way that reality TV makes us feel and the way that we kind of process our emotions through watching these shows. I want to first get into the idea of displacement. Uh, we talk about it at the top of the show. And um, I want to just explain the definition of that to you in this first episode, because we will be talking about the idea of displacement and a lot of these psychological theories, which you will all be able to find on emotionallybrokenpsychos.com and links. So um, you know for sure, because you know, I don't know if you're like me, maybe reading comprehension isn't your best or listening comprehension isn't your best skill. So I'm going to be reading a lot and I want you guys to take time with these theories and remember that I am playing armchair psychologist here. I am probably the most emotionally troubled woman. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I would say I'm an emotionally troubled person myself and that I don't have all the answers figured out. I'm between therapists, in fact. So um yeah, just just remember we're we're keeping this light here, but we're trying to grow a little bit and learn about psychology and reality television and ourselves and all of this. And and this is, you know, our first episode. So if it doesn't make sense to you at first, hang in there or just email us, Ramona Singer at emotionallybrokenpsychos.com. And perhaps uh there are your theories and, and that'll be great for us to talk about too. So I'm going to read from the Wikipedia definition for displacement. It says, in Freudian psychology, displacement is an unconscious defense mechanism whereby the mind substitutes either a new aim or new object for goals felt in the original form to be dangerous or unacceptable. A term originating with Sigmund Freud, displacement operates the mind unconsciously in its transference of emotions, ideas, wishes being most often to ally anxiety in the face of aggressive or sexual impulses. So I don't know. I mean, I can think of a displacement example right away off the top of my head, which is Sonia Morgan cleaning out her basement and feeling an attachment to her daughter's stuffed animals before she realizes that it's not the stuffed animals, it's the family unit that she misses. And I think that the audience at home knows it's not just the family unit that she misses. It's the security. It's the love. Sonia has a deep sense of loneliness. She's not great with autonomy. And I think that that's why Sonia, we have seen her struggle so much with substance throughout the course of this show. I personally feel that I do a lot of displacement myself. I can think about the first time I did it with reality television very, very clearly. First time that I did it in a way that it, you know, kind of shaped my opinion of relationships in life was watching Bethany getting married and Bethany ever after and the relationship between Bethany and Jason and how when you rewatch those episodes now you see Bethany was so open-hearted with Jason she was so clear with him about feeling that she was the crazy one the damaged one in the relationship and she was very open with Jason and the audience about that because she at that time truly felt that she was with the person she could give her heart to with two open hands and say take this. It's yours. You get me. You get me better than anyone else. And of course, Bethany, you know, feeling insecure, feeling that she didn't have a family really played up 
this, I guess this negative, not necessarily true story about herself in order to, I don't know, try and have a sense of humor or understand or feel worthy of the relationship that she was having with Jason. But then, of course, you know, as Bethany became more and more successful and she started to have a healthier and healthier understanding of the fact that she is like a self-sufficient machine and these, you know, having parents isn't all it's cracked up to be. Having a family isn't all it's cracked up to be. And it certainly doesn't define you. And she, in fact, is not much more damaged than the rest of us. And all of this was used against her, as you saw in the later seasons of Bethany Ever After, especially by Jason. So that relationship has always been, for me, something that I look at when I'm in a relationship. Because I want to make sure that as a person who considers herself a professional, a businesswoman. Um, you know, we can laugh about that, but I am an entrepreneur. And I think that I've always looked at that relationship and said, be really, really careful about the story you tell about yourself to the people that you want to be involved with on a deep personal level. There's that lesson. Uh, be really, really careful of being with someone just because you think they are better than you because the pieces that they seem to have are the things that you've always been missing. Traditional family, uh, slightly more conservative nature, values that are uh, more conservative. Jason was a nice package, but the reality of it was is that he was unable to accept Bethany for who she was. Uh, He was obviously drawn to everything that was great about her, but his, I guess, attachment to gender roles, which you could see play out even in his own family with his mother and father. Jason grew up very traditional. Um, He really used all of this, I guess, baggage or whatever it is that Bethany claims she had against her. And he's still using against her in their divorce, uh, their divorce case and the custody hearing and everything. He continues to use basically the words that Bethany put into his mouth against her. And so I really look at that relationship a lot to understand what it is I fear in romantic relationships, to understand what it is I don't want in romantic relationships, to understand what I could do better in my next romantic relationships. And also to kind of, it's really helped me understand a lot of the breakups I've witnessed in my life. I remember, you know, hearing a very close adult family member of mine complain unrelentingly about their spouse. And I never understood what the deal was with that because to me and to the rest of the world, their spouse was this happy-go-lucky, hardworking guy, conservative background, great family, family man, total family man. But what I didn't realize until I really watched this show was that this adult female family member of mine was slowly having her head pushed further and further under the water by the concept that this man was walking on said water. And it it comes up all the time in the last seasons of Bethany Ever After. And I really, really recommend if you are having questions about your worth in a relationship as a woman and how, or I mean, whoever you are, your questions about your worth in your relationship and feeling that your partner is using things that you've used, said to them against them. Why are they doing that? This will, this, that last season of this show will really, really help you process a lot of that stuff. Now, 
I also want to talk about the Lacanian aspect of it, which is that um, Jacques Lacan said a uh, pretty like well-known thing, which was that he feels that uh, displacement is from Wikipedia. I'm reading the unconscious structure of language uh, linking displacement to poetic function of metonymy in con- uh, condensation of that of a metaphor. So basically, a lot of us look at these as not just. I I guess things we can learn from, entertainment situations that are bigger than better than us, we look at them as metaphors for our own lives. And in some ways, a lot of these shows really are because reality TV has the unique distinction of being unscripted. Uh, We see these characters in their rawest forms. Unscripted television, you're usually dealing with, you can have a very, very complex, deep character, but oftentimes they are cobbled together pieces of 12 writers in a writer's room after you know, the pilot after the first few seasons, you start to see these complex humans and their problems may be relatable, but they, they aren't, they are undeniably not real humans. Uh, even on the shows where they feel the most like the real humans, um, sex in the city comes to mind, for example, like Harry is the ultimate, all of us in that way, but she never will, Carrie will never have what Bethany has or what even Teresa Judice has, which is just Judice, which is just having the simple, obvious emotions of one human being living their experience on earth. You get to see that in reality in a way that you don't get to see it anywhere else. You get to really, really watch humans all that edited. Of course, they're, they're totally, totally edited. But you get to see these people have these really raw emotional experiences and you get to watch them grow a lot. Um, you know, there's also the aggression aspect of it, which I personally experience a lot when I'm watching Southern Charm. Okay, so this is from the aggression section of the displacement article on Wikipedia. And it says, displacement can act in a chain reaction with people unwittingly becoming both victims and perpetrators of displacement. For example, a man is angry with his boss, but he cannot express this, so he hits his wife. The wife hits one of the children, possibly disguising this as punishment. Rationalization. I think we see this in Southern Charm every single week. I think that the dynamic with Whitney and his mother, Whitney always living under the scrutiny of his mother, whether he realizes it or not, causing him to feel the drive to be famous, to be this puppet master in this situation, um, and to remain the hero, uh, living up to his mother's legacy while also, um, I guess, meeting her needs as, I mean, I'm going to go ahead and say it. I I believe Patricia to be somewhat of an egomaniacal monster. Um, And we see that play out by, you know, Whitney putting together the entire show of Southern Charm to begin with. Um, And then within that, creating dynamics within the group um, that has led to everything from Catherine being a mother to her having been drug tested to the entire group being turned against her. I think that this is displacement and its aggressive form at its at its highest level, what we see on Southern Charm. The fact that this entire cast has been brainwashed, I guess, against a 24-year-old girl um, is pretty powerful stuff. And it really, people that under normal circumstances, I do believe that under normal circumstances, uh, Cameron might be a moral woman. I don't know about that about a Landon, but I would say that 
Cameron, for example, may be a moral woman, but she is driven by, unwittingly driven by this dynamic that exists within Patricia and Whitney's relationship originally. And we also see this Patricia Whitney relationship directly play out in his treatment of Catherine because I believe that Patricia, whatever happened to her as a child, it led her to worth, uh, hold, hold, uh, her worth in her social standing and her public perception and her, uh, self-value being reflected directly in her wealth. And that has obviously played out in Whitney. Now it's obviously affecting Catherine. It will obviously affect the children of the Ravenel. I think that this is a very, very obvious connection. And I think that we should, uh, really just keep that in mind a lot when we're talking about this sort of stuff. Now, we got to see on Real Housewives of New Jersey this week. Uh, I mean, it's just so ripe. I don't know if any of you at home who have maybe complicated family lives really felt so badly, I guess, for the Judice children when their mom came home from prison, especially Gia. I think that Watching Gia say that her father needed to go to jail for a while to get his shit together was one of the saddest things I have ever seen. Um, that's a child. It's It was a child having a better understanding of a world that is required or expected of her. Um, and that is something that I really want to get into with you guys. Please write in if you saw any of the, your dynamic in that, if you grew up in a home like that, if you yourself are a parent who has looked back and said, wow, my child has seen way too much of the world. And that is an example of that. Um, I think that that is really, really important. I think that you see a lot of the Oedipus complex in the Judice gorga family. I think that the sibling rivalry relationship between Joe and Teresa is absolutely um, complete, like, just sibling rivalry at its finest. Um, sibling, uh, sibling rivalry is um, something that people have done so much research on, how it's happened, um, how how sibling rivalry has come to be. And I'm reading right here from the sibling rivalry uh, Wikipedia page. And it says, sibling rivalry describes sibling rivalry describes the competitive relationship or animosity between siblings blood-related or not. Often competition is the result of of desire for a greater attention from the parents. However, even the most conscientious parents can expect to see sibling rivalry play out to a degree. Children tend to naturally compete with each other not only for attention from parents, but for the recognition of the world. Well, duh. And then you add in the fact that, you know, Teresa is the oldest child, naturally in birthright. Uh, A child is... The, the oldest child does tend to uh, resent their younger sibling. That is a natural thing. Um, this is from uh, the causes section of sibling rivalry. There are many things that can influence and shape sibling rivalry. According to Kyla Bosey from the University of Michigan, each child in a family competes to define who they are as individuals and want to show that they are separate from their siblings. Children may feel that they are getting unequal amounts of their parents' attention, discipline, and responsiveness. Children fight more in families where there is no understanding that fighting is not an acceptable way to resolve conflicts and no alternative ways of handling such conflicts. 
Stress in the parents' and children's lives can create more conflict and increase sibling rivalry. So we're going to go into what I think is playing up a lot here. Um, Sigmund Freud saw the sibling relationship as an extension of the Oedipus complex, where brothers were in competition for their mother's attention and their sisters their fathers. For example, in the case of little Hans, Freud postulated that the young boy's fear of horses was related to the jealousy of his baby sister, as well as the boy's desire to replace his father as his mother's mate. This view has been largely discredited by modern research. So if you guys don't know what the Oedipus complex is, it's in psychoanalysis. The Oedipus complex is a child's desire that the mind keeps the unconscious via dynamic repression to have sexual relations with the parents of the opposite sex, i.e. males attracted to their mothers and females attracted to their fathers. The Oedipus complex occurs in the third phallic stage, three to six, of five of the five psycho, uh, psychosexual development stages, one, the oral, two, the anal, three, the phallic, and four, the latent, uh, and five, the genital, which, uh, in which the source of libidinal pleasure is a different erogenous zone of the infant's body. Now, am I saying that Joe Gorga wants to have sex with his mom and that Teresa wants to have sex with her father? No, not necessarily, But I do feel that we see this play out in their relationships where they are both, both hyper, hyper sexual beings. They're both very, very, very intergender roles. They, um, you know, Joe Gorga really feels that he lost out on his father's love because he chose his sister's husband over him. This really, really speaks to me personally um, as well when I watch the relationship between the Judy J sisters and Juicy Joe. Um, I think that they're all of their relationships with him, particularly Gia, as you get more like that, they really are like four of his little mini girlfriends. And I also know just as a child of a single parent, there is um, a relationship that kind of takes over when you are in the household with a single parent, which they obviously were not raised with. But even in that short year, the gender that's missing in the home, for example, I grew up with a single mom. The gender that's missing in the home, the child tends to take on that uh, sexual energy. So I would say that I realized probably in my early 20s when I did a thesis on this actually in college, um, I have a very strong male energy. I always have. I don't know what it is. It's actually (laughs) a lot of people think I'm a lesbian when they first meet me and I don't know if that's why, but I think it's because I speak from a very... I have a male energy. I'm confident when I speak in in business. I'm confident when I speak to people about my ideas. And that is not typical in um, a more female energy. And it's something that I had to learn really early. Um, I think vocalizing, being a calming force, being the less emotional force in the house. And I think that we've really seen this play out in the premiere of this seasons Real Housewives of New Jersey, the way that the girls have really kind of taken on Teresa's role in the house, specifically Gia. Um, And it's super, super fascinating to me. I personally do not have a lot of family uh, uh, experience, obviously being in this sort of nuclear family. So I really want to get into that um, when we are having this conversation. Um, Were you in a situation like this growing up? Uh, Do you feel that I mean, can you think of any examples in your family where 
the male siblings fight irrationally for the mother's attention and the female siblings fight irrationally for the father's attention. I feel like in the Gorga family, um, you know, it is such a matriarchy, but um, the father has been always the real point of contention here and the father's preference toward Teresa. Um, that, of course, speaks against the Oedipus theory, which is, uh, I mean, obviously widely um, – considered to be not true anyway, but, um, there is something in there. Finally, I want to really, really quickly touch on something that I've been jamming on about the bachelorette. I am a big fan of the bachelor and the bachelorette. I stay away from paradise because it's a little too seedy for me, but Considering we're going to try to do this show twice a week, I might have to get into that too. I was watching The Bachelor last night and I had this theory or this idea hit me. I think I realized that I am so bored with JoJo because she doesn't have ugly duckling syndrome, which is not an actual diagnosed thing. Um, Ugly duckling syndrome, I'll just read from Urban Dictionary because I think it's funny. Beautiful people who didn't get pretty until high school or later and were nice because they were ugly. The niceness carries over through life. Now, I'm not saying JoJo was ever ugly, and I'm not saying that she's not nice. But I think that we see JoJo and other bachelorettes make these mistakes in picking their men because, and I mean, not, I'm not even going to touch The Bachelor because The Bachelor is just so 101. I mean, the way that the bachelors have always picked their women, always consistently since the very beginning was by, I mean, they pick with their dicks. And that's why there's maybe three bachelorette relationships that are still in play and like one or maybe one or two bachelor relationships when when there's been just so many more seasons. Uh, I'm going to call what JoJo has something more like swan syndrome where she was, you know, I mean, we've seen JoJo's before pictures. While she was always beautiful, she obviously didn't feel that she was beautiful. It's highly, highly rumored that JoJo had a nose job before she was on The Bachelor and then had another nose job and boob job before she was on The Bachelorette. And I think that what we see with her is her love language is so, so clearly based in affirmation. I mean, it's not doesn't take a rocket scientist or someone who has access to Wikipedia to see that. I mean, she is pretty, pretty clear that affirmation is her main thing. And I think that that really speaks to the fact that JoJo is an insecure person. And that also kind of explains the guys that she has left on this show. Now, I'm going to, I was very, very clear with my friends. I said, if I was JoJo, I would have privately hung myself after the third limo of guys pulled up because could she have been given a gnarlier crop of dudes to have to talk? I don't know. I mean, like, I really don't think she could have. Um, but JoJo, you know, let James Taylor go again last night. And she's let, let a lot of guys that are, you know, like, good guys, uh, kind of good guys go in favor to keep this, like, Jordan and Robbie bullshit around. Um, and I think that someone like Jordan in particular – uh, Jordan Rogers, Aaron Rogers' brother. Um, he seems to be the front runner for this season. I do not read Reality Steve anymore, so I really have no idea um, if he's the winner or not. But Jordan st- stuck around um, this whole time, despite the fact that you know JoJo herself was confronted with rumors that he had been cheating, and by an ex girlfriend that she had met. And you know she really just 
decided to gloss over that in order to keep Jordan around because he gave her the quote-unquote affirmation that she's needed. And he also um, is hot and he's a bad boy. And being liked by a bad boy must mean that you have some worth. And I think that JoJo has what I call swan syndrome, where she's now finally, in her mind, beautiful enough to date these really hot guys that she wants. Um, And that is the prize to her, is the ability to have a super hot guy who has a famous brother and his brother has a famous girlfriend. And she is excited to be involved in that. And that is more meaningful to her than maybe, I don't know, finding a guy that's going to really stick with her and give her a chance and... I see that a lot with bachelorettes, and it's the bachelorettes that I would say are more normal-looking, more American-looking, like Ashley, for example, um, who picked JP. She has a very, like, girl-next-door American look. Like, she doesn't look like JoJo or Andy or even Ali Fedotowski, where it's like, oh, yeah, I could see that girl in Maxim. Like, Ashley looks like girl next door. Um, And I think that she was really, really much more easily able to suss out and pick a mate because she doesn't have so much noise around her self-worth via her looks. And I think that um, that is something that really, really taints the Bachelorette franchise um, and really, really is seen. The differences are really hugely seen in how they pick their mates. And it will be interesting to see who JoJo picks because right now, as far as I can tell, she's down to like three douchebaggles, like not a good guy in the mix. Poor James Taylor, too. I just find that these shows are for me. I can lie. I can say like, oh, I'm just here to make fun of it. But I think we all watch The Bachelor and Bachelorette because we want to believe that love can be that simple. And it's nice to think that there's a world in which you could find your soulmate and just like, no, I can't snap, but I'm snapping. Like, just know like that. And, um, that's what the bachelor of the world that they've given us. And it's not, it's not an unpleasant idea. It's not a bad thing to watch. I mean, however, obviously anyone who's dated around or knows has any common sense, spent a little bit of time on earth knows that when you put TV cameras in front of people, um, not the most trustworthy people are there. Not the most trustworthy people come out for the quote unquote right reasons. Um, we also know that, you know, uh, the amount of time that they are given to know each other and the circumstances that they are put in, um, the ex- extravagant travel, the super silly group dates where, I mean, just people do things that you would never do in real life. I I can't, I laugh so much about the differences between JoJo and Caitlyn um, and just in their basic psychologies as well. Caitlyn, by the way, is another one who I think, you know, Sean for whatever it's worth, through watching their Snapchat, I really think Sean and Caitlyn are going to make it. I really do. I think that Caitlyn has a a natural confidence that's existed inside of her since she was a child, and I think that it fucked with her mind a little bit when she was dealing with the nick of it all. But at the end of the day, she really knew that Sean was the one that had been there for her. And that is, um, I think, really, really directly 
a result of Caitlin's confidence. I think that's also really, really telling, you know, Caitlin, her idea of a group date was how quickly and and badly can I sexually humiliate these guys um, through, you know, making them explain sex to children or forcing them to do a rap battle or making them sing mariachi. I mean, Caitlin was just all about humiliation tactics where I feel like JoJo was really much more in her group dates. She's about being saved. She's about being like, you know, the blonde lady that's being um, hung from the Empire State Building by a gorilla. Like she's really, really into that vibe. And um, you see that so much in the group dates. And I hate to say it, but when you come from a place of I want to be saved, you're so much easier to be pandered to. And she falls for everything that these guys are telling her. I mean, the fact that she would sit down with Jordan and he'd basically, when being confronted about cheating, just take a hardcore sip of his whiskey and move forward. I think that that's where we really got to see JoJo blowing past that moment. Um, that That's where we really got to see who JoJo was and where her priorities are in relationship, how she's how seriously she's taking this, her emotional sophistication level, and the fact that Jordan has stayed around. Now, I don't know if he's there just because he's a pretty face and the producers keep pushing him forward. Again, I don't read Reality Steve. I have no idea what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks. But I will say I don't have a lot of faith in JoJo simply not because of the bachelorette of it all, not just because I typically don't have faith in the show um, and because I know that the entire idea behind this show is uh, deeply, deeply flawed. Uh, I think that she won't do it because she does. She lacks the security one needs to be in the place in their life where they can find a spouse. Um, we've seen other people. I mean, Trista – Trista Rain, if you go back and you watch the very, very first season of The Bachelor where we meet Trista, you can see that Trista is a calm, centered, yet type A person. Um, it's no uh, no question in my mind about why she's one of the very – why she was the first and why she remains one of the few people in this entire franchise to be married. Trista knew who she was going into this, and that – will probably never happen again because reality TV does not draw, especially this show, does not draw a lot of calm, cool, confident people who know who they are. The Bachelor was such a new concept back then. At that time, reality TV itself was as well um, that I could see them drawing in a lot more people that seem to have their shit together. I don't know if you guys – go buy that DVD if you can. It's The Bachelor Season 1. You guys will die when you see the differences in the women they cast on the first season of this show versus the women they cast now, like there was a woman named Rhonda who looked vaguely like Rachel Dratch who made it to the top four. Like not saying that that shouldn't happen. I'm just saying that that wouldn't happen anymore. Rhonda wouldn't have made it. Rhonda was way too interesting to have even made it to the casting call. Like there's just, uh, we're dealing with a completely different realm of people now, but Jojo in particular, I, very bored by her season um, because I know that unlike ways that, you know, where you get to keep that kind of suspended belief alive that these couples are going to make it work. um, Jojo just, she's not there yet. She's not a confident person. I think when this show is over and the guys she and she picks uh, when they eventually break up, she'll probably maybe go the Ali Fedotowski route and wind up doing some sort of correspondent stuff. I could see Jojo being likable and she's definitely pretty enough to do that sort of 
work. I think a lot of people really, really like JoJo a lot. Um, she was not tapped to be Bachelorette originally. Like, I can almost promise you it was supposed to be Kayla, but that the response for JoJo was super, super overwhelming. And um, we really, really want to see her win. I just don't think she's there yet. She honestly reminds me of your, like, 26-year-old cousin who has an awesome boyfriend, and she's, like, positive she's going to marry him, but you're sitting there in your 30s going, like, girl... This ain't happening. You guys, you're not getting married. You have too much, you have too much growth left. You have too much ownership of yourself to find still. And um, that's where I really feel that JoJo is. Um, This is basically what the show is going to be every week. Just kind of talking about psychology, talking about reality TV, talking about the stuff that makes you feel, stuff it reminds you about in your life. And a lot of times I'm going to be doing this alone. I'm going to try to do two a week, like I said, um, and group it off uh, by you know, first half of the week or the shows that I watch, I don't know, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and the rest of the week being the rest of the shows. Um, unfortunately, right now, my reality TV schedule is pretty uh, clumped together. But with Southern Charm being over, Real Housewives of New Jersey starting up again, I'm interested to see what other shows and seasons Bravo's ready to roll out. Um, I think I might actually watch Bachelor in Paradise just for the chat of it all. Um I am really, really excited about this show because these are the kind of dialogues you wanted to keep going. This is just like, please advise if you want to give us a phone call, call the number that we list at the end. Sorry. Or just email us. It's it's really, really important that you guys reach out. It's really, really important that we have these conversations. This is not me having any sort of qualification at all. This is me having a a passion for pop psychology and a passion for reality television and a passion for understanding who I am, who we are, how the world works, processing our conversations. Again, all this stuff I'm just repeating, but I want you guys to kind of get an idea about this and realize where we're going. Please send me uh, any Wikipedia pages you think I should know with your theories. Please diagnose people for me. Send me your diagnoses. Who do you think is a true sociopath? Um, I love you guys. Thanks for listening to Emotionally Broken Psychos, learning self-awareness through reality television. Find us and subscribe on iTunes. And if you really love the show, consider giving us a five-star rating and a sweet-ass review. You can find more information about the show, including links to supplemental material, on emotionallybrokenpsychos.com. We'd love to hear your theories, aha moments, and other juicy tidbits. So reach out anytime to Ramona Singer at emotionallybrokenpsychos.com or call us at 415-779-2467. That's 415-PSYCHOS. Emotionally Broken Psychos is produced by Meredith Brace-Loss with support from Christina Lopez. Thank you to Mary Kenny for our logo. Until next time.